HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn more about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're turning our attention to how the global pandemic is impacting our mental health and how food brings us comfort during these times. I've never understood why people have said I'm brave for solo dining. Food can kind of be a source of solace or it can be a source of excitement or like an activity to, to keep you busy. When there's a crisis, typically the restaurant industry is one of the industries that springs into action in terms of being like, well, come in, we'll take care of you. Tune in to Meet and 3 to learn more about the psychological effects of COVID-19. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, welcome to The Feed Feed, where we sit down with leaders and upstarts of the food media realm to discuss everything from navigating social media, building, engaging with, and growing a community, and producing content that resonates with young and old. I'm Jay Cohen, Editorial Director of The Feed Feed, the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community, serving as your daily source of what to cook, bake, and drink. Today we are joined by my friend, Jesse Shevchek who is the studio food editor of The Kitchen, as well as the author of the brand new, gorgeous cookbook, Tasty Pride, that I'm honored to be a part of. Thank you so much for joining us, Jesse. Yes, thank you so much for having me on. Um, so this is going to be a really fun conversation because most of the guests that we have, I know them either professionally or personally, but we have like such an interesting history because we both went to CIA together at the same time. Um, and I remember distinctly when we went out to lunch at Marta, when you moved back to New York and we're looking to get into food media. So I kind of want to start there of like, what drew you to food media and what was that kind of initial, um, approach to breaking in? Yeah. Oh my God. I forgot about that dinner. That was so early. Yeah, so I was working in Chicago just prior to that, more in like an R&D role. And I had been doing that for a few years. And I was just like, not really fulfilled doing that. And food media always interested me, but I just had no idea how to start. You know, I don't like consider myself a writer. Writing doesn't come easy to me or anything. 
So then I moved to New York just a few weeks before I met you um, for dinner. And I got an internship at BuzzFeed doing food writing. I was like 25 years old. I went from being a culinary director to an intern. And luckily that paid off. But that was kind of my initial first step into media. It's funny because I I think that's more common than not the story. Uh, You think of like the first step is typically always an internship. That's like how I broke in as well at Sever. Um, And it was unpaid and absolute torture, but was worth it all. And I would do it again in a heartbeat. Um, But what I think most people don't realize is like most interns in food media, like a lot of them are 30 or in their 30s or like making a career change. And that's just kind of the name of the game. Um, What was it like going from restaurants, R&D to all of a sudden being at a desk and kind of handling BuzzFeed, which is just such a huge um, kind of media empire. Yeah, I'm, gosh, I don't even like know how to put it into words. It was, it's different because I, like, I really wanted to get hired, obviously. So at that time, I was like trying my absolute hardest to write posts that got traffic, to put out food that was interesting. Um, so I put a ton of pressure on myself. I found it very stressful. But stressful in a different way. Like after work and my old jobs, I'd be physically exhausted. And then after this, I'd be like, like emotionally and intellectually exhausted, which is kind of something I hadn't experienced before. So it was really interesting. What kind of posts were you doing? What it was kind of like the bread and butter in terms of what you were putting out in terms of content? Sure. So it was kind of just like everyday food posts, like typical BuzzFeed posts. But then... I kind of fell into this role there taking on special food projects. So if there's like a big meal plan or sometimes if there was like sold food packages that had an editorial component to them, like recipes, I would take on those. So after a few years, it actually was kind of this role that didn't exist. So they gave me the titles like special project editor, which kind of made sense. But it was basically tackling these big food projects, which is why like it kind of led into this whole book thing too. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's a great segment. Let's go right into this book. Um, How did it start? How did you get involved? And what was kind of your approach in terms of how you wanted this book to kind of represent queer food? Sure. So like the first Pride Month I worked at BuzzFeed, I did a series of interviews. I think honestly, you might have been in the first one. that I I was. I was. That's so funny. I remember that. Yeah, you totally were. So I did like a handful of those. And the response was really overwhelmingly positive. And I think I started to realize like, oh, this is a platform that maybe this audience, it's especially important for them to see and to read. So I kept doing that. And maybe a few months after that initial Pride Month, I met with my editor. Uh, Her name was Melissa. And I was like, I have this pipe dream. It's ridiculous. And I kind of explained the book. And she's like, this is a great idea. I'm going to pitch it. So she literally went to the top and she pitched it and it, quickly got approved. Obviously there's like a ton of time between approval and like actual book deal that was a long time. But it's interesting because at Buzzfeed you can kind of pitch these ideas and they like can actually happen. So it was a really interesting position to be in from that point of view. What was that like? What is that like? I think there's often that kind of um, like televised version of 
like pitch meetings and uh, most people don't really understand the kind of process in terms of getting a story, a recipe, um, let alone a book approved. Uh, so what was that like for you? It's funny because it, it was like the idea quickly got approved on the BuzzFeed side. It, but the complicated part was kind of these conversations back and forth for many months about like, what do we want this to look like? The details surrounding it, like that for something like this, it's so important, these like micro details that then we had to like find the perfect kind of way to work with Penguin Random House, the relationship we already had with them and make this work. Cause it was not something we had done before. You know, we don't have any, projects at BuzzFeed during my time at least that were like contributed by this many people so just like figuring out how to pay these people and like how to get the release form just like this whole thing so it took many many months before we could even like dive into writing it that was kind of this this long ideation process did you write a like formal proposal once it got approved no that was an incredible part like I'm very lucky because we work with them already so it was kind of way more casual in the sense of like, just, we had books like, oh, I don't know, we have two books coming up or something. And then they're like, oh, this idea is great. Maybe it can fit into the structure or like the contract we already have with Penguin. I love it. Um, And then, so then what was the timeline start to finish? Timeline, um, well, so once, we kind of got everything squared away and like everyone was super happy with the details surrounding the contract and thought it was like super, you know, beneficial to the community and everything. It was a really fast turnaround because we wanted to come out this year. So um, kind of when I was reaching out to people, that process was maybe about three months, like from start to finish gathering, editing, testing all these recipes from all these people. So this is like a beast because you're, you think of someone who's doing like a traditional cookbook, there's um, obviously a lot of time and work goes into it, but there's a completely different mindset when you're doing a crowdsourced cookbook in which you have recipes coming from, how many different contributors are there? So it's 75 contributors and then a handful of them are like partners, like business partners or like life partners or just some sort of duo. Gotcha. Um, but I think that the, so the 75 contributors, each one obviously sending in recipes, they write recipes their own way. Uh, some are chefs, some are in media, some know how to write recipes, some maybe not so much. Um, what was the testing process like? Yeah, the testing process was, uh, it's, it's a really cool story actually. So once I started getting all these recipes in, um, I think we were just like very naive in the beginning and we're like, oh, I would be able to test to edit all these within this time frame. And we quickly realized like this is a beast, like you were saying. And so we had this freelance recipe tester, um, an editor who's just like super incredibly talented and experienced. Her name is Danielle. And she worked in LA. I was working in New York. So it was funny because in New York, it was like this hub where I'm gathering all these recipes. I'm editing head notes, like writing the front text, um, and then kind of doing all the legal work, making sure everyone gets paid. And then I would send the recipes to Danielle. She would cook them, she'd shoot photos of them over to me, and then she'd make edits. And then 
I would edit and then send it back to the contributor. So it was like this whole back and forth with this person I never met before. And it's funny because I only first met her when we had the photo shoot in Brooklyn months after I turned in the manuscript. And it was like this whole like, oh my God, you saved me moment. Finally meeting you. Yes. Oh, I love that. Um, Tell me about the shoot. So I think we can maybe... Actually, why don't we put a pause on the book right now and first talk about you and your current job and the transition from a role at BuzzFeed that's so content-driven in the sense of editorial and, and writing articles to now being the studio food editor at The Kitchen. Yeah, it's, it's cool and it feels kind of like a perfect next step for me because so this role, I sit in on two teams. I sit on the art team and then I sit on the editorial team. And so basically my job is kind of I style recipes and then I'm also writing them and working with the team. So I'm kind of this pair of eyes on set that is making sure that everyone's recipes are translating in a way that makes sense. Not only like do they look beautiful, but it makes sense editorially. So like do they you know, if a recipe yields twelve and we're showing, I don't know, fourteen, like that's something that hopefully I would catch on set. So it's really cool because mm-hmm. I do love writing, but I'm definitely not a writer. So this is a really cool, like, middle ground for me to work that this kind of position doesn't really exist at other places, you know, as commonly. Yeah. Um, How many photo shoots are you doing? Obviously, like, we can discuss about what this looks like currently with COVID, but I would say first, like, what was it like beforehand? Yeah, I mean, before this, it was bi-weekly. So one week I'd be on set, and then the next week I'd be writing. And like, is that a combo of stills and video? I mean, I love your kind of the, what's the series that you do where you test all the recipes from across the internet and compare them? Yeah, so we do like the recipe showdown. So that's also part of it. Recipe Um, showdown. Yeah, so I guess I I do a lot of different things, but (laughs) yeah, it's like two floors. The bottom floor is, of the office that we have has the editorial side and then the video side and our video team is pretty big we have a handful of people and then the upstairs we have this one kind of tucked away studio where we work and we do all the still images but primarily i'm doing still images when i'm working on that side gotcha and what has that experience been like um Obviously, you've always had a gorgeous Instagram. I remember you, you were like the, the Brussels sprout editor here at Feed Feed. Oh, yeah. At some point. Yeah, I remember. Um, it's cool. Uh, Sorry, I like, totally cut you off. Um, no, it's cool no, no, no. because, like, I was always interested in the art side and the photography side and the styling, but I have, like, no formal art training or, you know, I don't know design or how to work a DSLR very well. So it's cool to be able to work with these people who specialize in that. And then we kind of reap the rewards of working with each other. Like it just feels very collaborative and like this art team, which is this really cool kind of hybrid role. So you talk about design, obviously you've now been in both of these roles that are so predominantly digital. Um, What has been some of your experiences than doing a cookbook that's print and like as someone who's been in both print and digital it's like night and day um what has been kind of been your experience yeah it's um it's funny because i feel like with print everything is so planned and so thought out like not saying that digital isn't but 
it's this whole different beast where it's like the stakes are so high because it becomes this physical object if there's like a mistake it's like well shit we can't just like scrap this whole printing so it's much different and with the pride book we were super lucky because we brought on a queer designer named sophie um she does all the design for the diaspora turmeric company so she's really cool and Uh i feel like she's like super passionate about this and you could totally tell like with how it looks so we were kind of really lucky to get her on this project i love it um so we're talking about style we're talking about design you're obviously um in this new role in the kitchen that's kind of handling everything um in terms of stills and video what was it like going into this cookbook shoot um what was the prep what was your kind of involvement um and your experience it was funny because with this shoot i wasn't really slotted to do any work other than just be there and oversee and answer questions about recipes if they come up and once i got on set i was like okay i don't really like doing that like so i essentially pushed myself into the kitchen and then i worked every day on set with the stylist monica and her assistant crystal and i was just like i just want you to treat me like an assistant so it was really cool because i thought it was also super important for me to have my hands in every photo so it was really cool because it was a ton of recipes we crammed into a little amount of time and they were like chef recipes so they're not simple or fast some of them they're like more project-based so we were all it was kind of like just like we're all in this together and we're all reading these head notes and these stories and it was just kind of probably like one of the most fun experiences i've ever had on set um and tell me a bit about kind of the book as a whole and this kind of curation of chefs and writers and kind of queer people in the food community and how you went about finding them, reaching out to them, wrangling them for the book. Yeah, wrangling them was really funny because it was honestly like a lot of texting friends to text other friends, um, like emailing favors in. I probably honestly might have even asked you to text someone. I don't remember. Um, It is cool. Like I texted Brian Hoffman from Big From Scratch and I was like, I have this pipe dream. I want Jesse Tyler in the book. I know that you know him. And then within like 10 minutes, he connected me with their team and it worked out. So it's just kind of like pulling favors for friends. And it's really, I'm like really lucky to have these people who help me with that. So you're collaborating with all of these people. What is the curation process like in terms of them pitching recipes, figuring out how you don't end up with 17 pasta dishes um and 15 apple pies oh my gosh yes that was really challenging actually because it's like i have to funnel into categories and give like some direction but i also don't want to give much direction because that kind of defeats the purpose of them contributing so when i reached out to people i i had the chapters kind of slotted out in my mind like snacks side dishes whatever and I would be like, hey, we have room in these three categories. Like, do you want to pick one? And then they'd pick one. And I'd be like, okay, what are you thinking? And I'd say 80% of the time, the first thing that they pitched me worked just fine. But sometimes we'd have overlap or sometimes we'd you know, need something else. It's funny because I remember two things. 
popcorn. A lot of people wanted to contribute popcorn recipes, and then a lot of people wanted to contribute pasta recipes. So then we had to be like, oh, these sound incredible, and I want that so bad, but could you do something in this category instead? So you, you get in all these recipes, which, I mean, it really is a quite diverse mix. Um, and obviously, uh, Elzar got the popcorn he did. recipe, which looks absolutely amazing. <laughs> Um, you're going through this process, you're editing, you're writing the text. What were some takeaways that you got from this experience in terms of uh, someone maybe approaching their first book, even if it's not a project like this? Yeah, I, I feel like I learned, I mean, I had no idea how book writing worked prior to this. So it was kind of just being thrown in. It's like, it's like birthing a child, essentially. Everyone I talked to during the process said, oh, writing a book is really hard. I mean, I'm sure, you know, you just, you're wrapping up your first one, so congrats. Yeah. Um, but it really is hard. It really is just a ton of moving parts that you have to keep track of. And it's like you're so emotionally connected to it because it's like yours. And rarely are you working on projects that like you feel some sort of ownership over. So for me, it was like really emotionally exhausting because I wanted everything to be perfect. I wanted everyone to be happy. But then once we got into like the shooting process and the final edits, it's just like super rewarding. So it was totally worth that kind of initial birthing experience. I'd love to talk now about styling and your approach, your thoughts, your aesthetic, who you kind of love or what publications you love in terms of the way they style food. I think for so many people, the concept of food styling is this like whimsical fairy tale. Um, And most people don't understand kind of how much goes into every photo. Uh, so when did you kind of start to focus uh, on that aspect? And now what's your experience being part of an art team? Yeah, it just kind of happened, honestly. I was always drawn to it and attracted to it. And it just kind of naturally fell in. And I mean, I love styling. I think that there's so much that we can do that some publications don't. Like with this book, I'm really happy that it has this kind of clear like hyper gloss, hyper colorful, like large shadow aesthetic because it just adds so much to it. And I feel like it makes it so, it feels like a celebration. It feels like fresh. And I mean, I love publications that kind of, they're like on the border between being like an art object versus like traditional food selling. Like I obviously want the food to look tasty and delicious, but I think there's something fun that happens when we treat it as if it's more like a sculptural thing. I think like Cherry Bomb does a really good job with that. I think that, you know, these niche publications like Brutal Magazine is really cool when they kind of are half fashion, half food. And I feel like there's a lot we can do there. I think Chelsea Kyle, the photographer, is like also a great example. She's just like using these star filters like crazy. And she's just like hyper gloss, kind of like this like PC music inspired aesthetic, which I think is super cool. And I feel like that's kind of where I want to go professionally when I'm doing things on my own. I want to like push 
like beyond marble Border- slabs and I want to like kind of challenge yeah. myself. Borderline Kira Kira. Exactly, yes. <laughs> uh, um, so now obviously you have this gorgeous book. Tell me a little bit about the philanthropic component to it, which I think was such a huge part of it. Um, and also something that was so unique and not necessarily um, common when you think of a book or even just any type of content push surrounding queer chefs. Yeah, I mean, that first, that goes back to kind of the contract. Um, So part of the contract was that I wanted to make sure every single person who touched the book was paid, you know, from like the Jesse Tyler's to the Anthony's, everyone was paid for their contribution, which I think is super important because if we're going to make a book about queer chefs, we should obviously be reinvesting in them. And then the second part is the donation to GLAD. Um, So both BuzzFeed Tasty is donating $25,000, and then the publisher is donating $25,000 to GLAD2, which I think is a great charity also, because if we look at what this book can do, it's really about representation, because it's a huge platform. It's getting to the hands of people. You know, These stories might not be as easily available or readily available to and like glad is just going to make sure that that representation continues with this donation. So I think it's a really perfect partnership in that sense. And I thought, you know, if we do a pride book and there's not these details that are sorted out, there'd be like nothing to be proud of. So I'm really happy that this was like a twofold reinvestment in the community. Yeah. I mean, it's super meaningful and something that's not, not the norm, unfortunately. Yeah. That's what I learned. I, you know, prior to this, I was digging around on different contributor books and it doesn't seem to be the norm, which is like absolutely no fault to nobody. It's just unfortunately the way, you know, cookbook businesses are. But with this in particular, I'm like, we can't do this unless these people are paid. A hundred percent. That's amazing. Well, with that, we're going to take a quick break. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their bright red color. And don't forget about flavor. U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile make them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at choosecherries.com. So Jesse, now that we've kind of tackled your entire career and this gorgeous book, I kind of want to talk a bit about food in general, what you're really liking now in terms of style, ingredients. Uh, obviously, you think of like a pub- publications, both of like BuzzFeed and um, The Kitchen that are so kind of on the nose in terms of the zeitgeist of food. What 
have been some of your favorite um, kind of things that excite you? Yeah, um, I feel like only just recently I'm kind of like finding my own style and finding like ways to incorporate that point of view into my work. Um, and also along with that, I feel like I've only just recently been leaning into kind of baking and pastry as what I'm specializing in. I had this kind of concept, like I don't want to be called a baker. I don't want to be thought of as a baker and I'm just kind of now coming around to it. So I feel like publications like bake from scratch, you know, going back to Brian, he let me do this huge piece on caramelized white chocolate. And it was almost like this like long form recipe development which was really exciting. So I feel like I'm kind of leaning into more baking a pastry. I've done some desserts for the kitchen that have like felt really fulfilling. So I feel like I'm going to try to go into that as the years go by. I love it. What was kind of the reasoning behind not wanting to be known as a baker? I feel like that is a complicated question and I'm not quite sure. You know, I went to culinary school and I studied culinary, um, I don't know. I didn't want to box myself in and I felt like maybe the industry would take me less seriously or something, which is just so ridiculous looking back at it now. And it was like some sort of personal insecurity I had that I'm like kind of just now getting over. What was your journey? I mean, I only know this because I did the exact same thing. And while I'm not, I will never, I'm not calling myself a baker just because um, I feel like I'm just not good enough as a baker to call myself a baker but i think that the the concept of food media is this real weird bubble in which people who've studied just culinary are given the permission to explore and almost like take on the role of the home cook in terms of learning a skill um in the realm of baking so i have while i'm not a baker i have mastered many baking techniques and dishes because of the fact that I came into it blind um did you have any kind of experiences like that yeah totally it's like with media you're just assigned constantly things that you have to write even if you're like oh god like the other week I had to develop a bagel recipe and I was like I've literally never made homemade bagels it was this whole (laughs) I feel like it's like this fraud experience that I have to like figure out how to do it quickly and figure out how to do it well and translate it into a recipe. So yeah, totally. Like you kind of just learn on the job and figure out like what makes you happy. And also you're totally a baker. I mean, I, uh, totally I, I'm just, I'm just, I'm, it's whatever. I don't like labels. I mean, I'd call you one. <laughs> um, but I, I, but I think that that's such a interesting thing. So you're, Leaning into baking, what would you say your kind of perspective is on food? Yeah, I mean, I think I do want to continue to kind of straddle this line between, you know, being on the art side and then being on the edit side. And I think my next project or like going forward things that I do that are specific to myself, like if I ever take on, you know, my own cook or something, I would want it to definitely have a defined, you know, visual aesthetic that is equally as important to the food. Yeah. I mean, I think that's such a key part and something that's also super rare. And I don't know if this is something that's changing um, 
more so in the realm of food media, but I do believe that there was this long period in which there was a divide. You either were an editorial and created the recipes or you were the stylist in charge of making them beautiful, but rarely was there any overlap. Um, and they kept them very separate in which you would have one team who's developing all the content and then the other team who's cooking them all for the photo shoots. Um, I find more and more that that is kind of changing and the two are becoming um, either the same team or sometimes the same people. Uh, what is it like being on the same side of the sense of having to develop a recipe and then style it? Yeah, I mean, I totally know what you mean too because I feel like if you look like people like like Suzanne, she's like the perfect example of like she's an authority on both like cooking the edit side as well as just an incredible stylist. And it makes sense because there's so much overlap. I feel like what you do too, you style a bunch of your own stuff and it just makes sense. It gives you kind of this freedom to be there from start to finish you know you're writing you're concepting you're editing you're cooking and then you're styling so I feel like by the end if it's my recipe I've I've thought of it visually before I started and then after I styled it I'm making these edits so it kind of makes it a stronger piece and it gives me kind of agency to have complete ownership over my work which is really nice I think that's a great way to put it. And it, it really is kind of that um, mirror to the rest of media, not just food in the sense of the kind of producer editor setup that I feel like everyone's looking for. They're looking for, I mean, the next thing that everyone wants is that you're going to be styling your food and shooting it as well. Yeah. I keep joking like with everything that's going on right now. I'm like, wow, I've realized just how unsustainable I am. Like I need to learn how to use a camera better. I need to learn how to like light better. And I feel like the more skills you have, it's like the more marketable and sustainable you'll be. And I'm learning this. So yeah. What is that? What is that like? Cause obviously at the same point you have done, you've contributed to so many publications. Um, you've done a lot of pieces for food 52. Uh, you obviously, I remember your bake from scratch piece because I was at um, Aaron's house, I think, right after yours, shooting mine. Yeah, I remember. Um, we had, like, a vision board up, or Aaron did, and it had both of our pieces. I'm like, that's yes. totally Jake, I can tell. Yeah. Uh, what? Um, I don't even remember what I was saying. What did I start saying? Oh, yes, about contributing. What has that been like for you? As someone coming in, um, and I just know from my own personal experience... Um, coming into food media is one thing. Coming into food media from the side of the recipe developer and then being put into the position of having to pitch. Uh, and while there are publications that are so like recipe focused and just pitching a recipe, everyone's looking for the story angle, um, for what is copy going to be, what is going to be kind of the, the meat of it. Um, what has been your approach to pitching publications, um, getting stories out there, and kind of expanding on your bylines across media. Yeah. I mean, I think writing and pitching is really hard. I think it's really scary because there's like, there's no one way to pitch someone and no one ever teaches you how to do that. And even if you do ask like professionals, there's truly not one answer. It's been really a personal experience for me. I've been lucky to 
be able to just like meet people for drinks I look up to and then have like a conversation style pitch, which is really nice. But then when I pitch people more cold, um, I try to focus on the recipes. I tried to come into like, I am a recipe developer who can also write, you know, these stories, these head notes, but it was like, I go on, I'm like, oh, I should try to lean into what I'm good at, which is recipe development. So I'm trying to do that more so. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answered anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I love what you said about the concept of meeting people out for drinks and the almost friendliness of media that a lot of people don't expect um, in the sense of, most people are kind of looking that it, the the natural thing to do would be to like send a cold email um, and go for it that way versus the concept of meeting someone at an event, uh, taking it into a more like casual um, situation of going out for drinks or trying a new restaurant, et cetera. What was that like for you as you have gone through your career and made so many different friends and connections throughout the media space. Yeah. Food media is interesting because it is such like a personal industry. The things you write about are personal. The way you cook is personal. Everything goes back to like who you are. And I, so personal relationships are super important. And what I found is kind of that, like if I help someone, they will help me like shine theory is so prevalent in food media like with the book you can tell like these people i you know they're in the book shining and therefore it like makes me shine and that help it's the same way with like publications you know like when eric kim publishes me food 52 shines i shine so i feel like it's just this investment back and forth and it's like if you're nice to people like you will get niceness back and i totally feel that's the case with food media more so than other industries yeah um i mean i think that's i think uh, yeah the concept of of supporting others is it's almost like the golden rule the golden rule is so prevalent in food media because at the end of the day i mean i just think i've seen both sides of the coin um in the sense of there have been situations in which i have been the one getting emails from someone pitching me and then in the next few years it's a different situation and I'm pitching them um and vice versa because of the fact that people move around um people's projects are so like they're just so ephemeral they they're doing something they're in need of a contact for Jesse Tyler Ferguson one day and the next day like you were looking to jump into bagels and you need Russ and daughters to get on the phone immediately. And I think at the end of the day, when you, the only way to build up a network like that is by. No, seriously. Yeah. And like going back to that, when I was like editing these people's head notes and recipes for the book, I'm like, what am I doing? Like I'm literally editing Anthony's recipe. Like I feel like such a fraud right now. So it's so funny how food media just works in that way. I mean, I think that that's, but that's kind of the beauty of it. Um, and I, I think that that is, uh, another thing that comes up a lot in food media. And I think we've touched about this a few times during this, uh, conversation first about like the, the baker. I think when I, when I was saying that and 
now the concept of being a fraud or not necessarily being that expert because I think a lot of people are moving more towards this super personal um, approach when it comes to how they're cooking, how they're developing recipes. And there's a human element that people want. They don't want someone to come in and say like, hi, I know everything. I am better than you in the kitchen and you just need to listen to everything I say. They want someone that's like, hey, I was really interested in this. So I put a lot of work into learning a few things about this. I'm not the best at it, but I have learned enough that I can teach you something. Yeah. I mean, I think that's like so much more relatable and... I feel like the idea of like being experts and like writing these pieces, like this is the answer. This is the way to do something is such an old school media mentality that I'm happily is seeing that it's going away and it's dying. And in turn, it's just like, this is how I cook. If you want to cook the same way, like here's how I do it. I think it's like way more enjoyable of a concept. So how do you cook? Oh God, but that's a complicated question. And I've only, I, I feel like now I realize how complicated it is because I'm like, oh my God, I have to cook for myself now. When prior, I was just like taking leftover food from set and totally taking that for granted. And I'm like, wow, I totally missed those leftovers yeah. now. <laughs> but I don't even know how I cook at home. What <laughs> Today I'm making a... What, yeah, what's, what's it? Well, today I'm making a big salad because I'm working on this big salad piece for the kitchen, which is super cool. So I'm literally making a giant like Caesar type salad right after we get off the phone. Oh, that's my favorite. My favorite is when I have um, assigned stories that are like healthy and not like you to get in a baking rut and then you have 15 different cakes. Oh my gosh, I know. My roommate, she works in office and she would be the one who would take like leftover baking projects to work. And like, even if I thought it was a terrible flop of a recipe, her coworkers would love it. I'm like, oh my God, I need my roommate Elaine so she can take all this food. Yes. I mean, I think that that's a... But even just the concept of how much goes into developing a recipe and the sheer quantity of food. Um, And then the aspect of like everyone is definitely self-aware and looking to not contribute to food waste. So if that means that like I'm just eating whatever the hell I made, even if it was a failed recipe, even if I like have been eating it for four days straight, it's like that's just. Yeah, and I don't know if you feel this, but I feel like with everything going on now, I feel like there's, I'm trying super hard to be like incredibly thoughtful and try to nail these recipes on the first try now. A hundred percent. That That's actually so funny that you said that um, because it's kind of twofold. I think on one end, yes, that is like, I just need to nail it because I don't know if I'm going to be able to yeah. get all of the it's ingredients. It's like such a process to even ASAP. get them again. And then the other side of it that I think is so interesting um, is the concept of moving away from super specific things and more so taking a broader approach to what either the recipe is going to be or the story is going to be um, and then customizing it to what's available. Um, So much I think like everyone is posting and I mean my favorite thing from long before COVID is... um, Sarah Carey does the thing, I made your recipe butt, um, in which she'll like make someone's recipe from some publication on the internet and then we'll say like all the things she changed about that. Um, 
And that's how everyone's cooking right now because if I want to make something, that's great. And I have all the things, but instead of one huge ingredient, I'm swapping out another uh, because I'm getting random vegetables. And I mean, one of my favorite parts about this is I've just been getting like the uh, grab bag boxes from Norwich Meadow Farms delivered. And to kind of just be like released from the concept of having to pick exactly what vegetables I want to eat or recipes I want to make and just instead do it the other way around has been the exact opposite of everything about food media and, and test kitchens, but that's kind of the liberating Yeah, it'd be to interesting it. to see like long-term how this changes recipe development and people's approach to it. What has work been like for you now during COVID? Are you styling everything from home? Um, have there been video shoots? Talk to you a little bit. Yeah, about I mean, I've, I've learned how to use, or use is a really generous term. I've used how highly. I shoot on a DSLR. <laughs> I try. Um, and then we send those to, we have an in-house photographer at the kitchen, and he just edits them and makes them look so much better. I'm like, oh, thank God for this. But yeah, we're all developing from home. Um, people are shooting videos from home and we're just kind of trying to make it work. Amazing. I mean, I think that's the the wildest part of this all um, is seeing what that's going to be like in the short term and the long term. Um, What do you kind of hope to see from media when the world slowly gets back to normal? I feel like it's a hard question, but Going back to kind of the substitutions idea, I think that recipe development and food writing, I hope, will be a lot more, you know, accessible and less elitist and people will be kind of more thoughtful when writing recipes that, you know, we have to include substitutions. We have to be aware of limitations for people. And I do think it's going to make recipe developers be way more conscious of what they're publishing, what they're developing, and kind of making sure recipes are practical instead of kind of like self-serving. Yeah. Um, I think the last part of that is I do think it's going to, it's going to start to clear out anyone, any recipe developer or publication that doesn't put the effort in terms of, testing and making sure the recipe works yeah that too um as things become like it's just i feel like now more than ever if a recipe fails i am too fragile to not take it personally and never go to that oh my gosh i know even when like i develop a recipe and like someone a friend is like oh my god i'm making a recipe it's like just i'm like oh my god i'm so anxious what if for some reason this yes i'm holding my breath it's like i've tested this like five times i shouldn't be so anxious but it's just it's just a thing yeah no matter how many like for example there's this one recipe i did for feed feed like two months at the very beginning of this and it was we kind of started releasing what are our pantry friendly go-to recipes for people that have limited things and it was this olive oil snack and cake with like a berry swirl and it was I gave like a million substitutions. Like if you wanted to use frozen berries, use frozen berries, fresh, only one, switch it out for jam or Nutella for all I care. Um, And everyone was making it and posting it. I was looking so good. And then 
this, I think the, the hardest part is when then substitutions get to like the next, next level where it's like, well, I made it vegan and gluten-free and I cut the sugar by half and it was terrible. And that's when I at least can. No, yeah, totally. It gets to a point where like you can't take it on yourself. There was this Rice Krispie treats recipe I published and for some reason it didn't work out for someone. And then it turns out they're using like these vegan marshmallow substitutions and at that point i like allowed myself like okay you don't have to feel guilty anymore jesse i love it well this brings us to our lightning round which is my favorite part of the podcast um where i'm just gonna throw out a few questions and you can just yes sounds good uh so the first one is who's killing it on the gram who do you love to follow could be food, could be art, could Chelsea be a celebrity. Kyle, the photographer. I'm just like actually obsessed with Chelsea Kyle. Yes. Is it still that? Or is it Chelsea? Okay, and yes. Kyle I think on it is, but I'm, I don't know why I'm calling her that. <laughs> yes. Well, no, that's her That's her name. It's just she, her, her just handle like, has her middle name in it. No, I feel like no one else is shooting food in the way that she is. And like just looking at her photos, I feel like. I myself, yeah, I'm like it's so gorgeous. growing as a person, just like following her, which sounds ridiculous, but she's just like so cool. I feel, I feel. So we we're actually we've never met, but we were, and we ended up having to cancel, which I was so upset. We we're supposed to go out for like a celebratory drink because we were both nominated for ICP Best Instagram um, last year, and that was like, I I still think that she is one of the most talented photographers She's out just there so right cool. now. I love how she puts that star filter on everything and everything just like shimmers like old Hollywood. Yes. Truly. Um, when was the last time you were floored by a meal? Could be a restaurant pre-COVID to oh. help people. Okay, so maybe reminisce. like two weeks ago, it was the first time I went out for food. And I just got in a car with uh, my boyfriend and we went to Wendy's and oh my God, just the experience of having like hot food that was from a restaurant. We were both like, this is the best day we've had in months. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Um, What have been some of the favorite, some of your favorite recipes you've developed over the years? um, Oh man, that's hard. Um, There's this caramelized white chocolate chest pie that has like these striped, uh, powdered sugar on it which i'm happy and proud of because i tested it oh my god maybe like 18 times or something there's also this cookie that i think maybe actually is my favorite recipe it's this black licorice salted brownie cookie i did for food 52 and it's like quite peculiar and divisive but i love it so much i love that um what is exciting you in the food space right now? It could be an ingredient, it could be a technique, could be a... Oh my gosh, that's such a hard question. Um, I love all these projects that people are doing, like the, the contributor cookbooks, essentially like Pride Book, but I'm seeing more and more that do have this like charitable component. Um, even if it's like a zine style one, I think those are so cool. Yeah, it's like such a cool way to build yes. community. That's, it's a lot. There's a lot, I think COVID has done a great job in terms of getting everyone together and putting that forward. Um, I mean, I was just in the one for, I mean, Great Jones just did one um, that was for charity around COVID. A lot of ones are kind of now coming out surrounding restaurant relief funds. Um, I think that's a that's a really awesome point. That's Yeah, I love it. It's like, 
not only charitable, but it's like building community within the industry too, which is really nice. Yeah. What were some of your favorite recipes? Oh, there's a lot. Um, I guess my go-to is that one of the first recipes that I got sent to me was from Brian Hart Hoffman. And it was like these wedding cake cookies. And at that point I was leaving kind of my prompt for people incredibly broad because we had no categories filled up. Just like, send me what you want. And he wrote this head note that was essentially about like how he grew up just going to weddings and loving them. And then eventually just getting really depressed because he realized he will never be able to have that experience. And then to the eventual like realization that he can given like new administration. And it was this head note that I didn't know they were going to be like this emotional, this powerful. And I was so happy when I received this recipe and like, I started crying and I texted Brian immediately. Um, that's amazing. I'm actually, it's funny. You said that. So I pulled it up and I'm reading it right now. And it's, yeah, it's so good. And I love that photo too. Mm-hmm. I love those cookies so much. Amazing. Um, and then the question that we ask every guest, every episode is we play a edible oh version God. of fuck, marry, kill. Um, and <laughs> we keep it super, um, curated oh to the guest. So for <laughs> yours, um, your options are crinkle cookies, ganache tarts, or oh, scoops of cookie um, which for like reference, if anyone goes to your Instagram, I feel like those are like. Yeah, thank you. Um, I would marry crinkle cookies for sure. Um, I would, God, I would, I would kill the dough balls. I think I'm over it. I think I need to stop. (laughs) And then, okay, yeah, I'd fuck the tarts because they were just like classy. They're just like really sexy. (laughs) Yeah, the cookies are like sustainable. The crinkle cookies, like they'll give Um, me a good life if I marry them. I love the reasoning. Not enough people give the reasoning behind their choices. So I appreciate that greatly. Um, Thank you so much, Jesse. This was so much fun. Such a great conversation. Um, And everyone needs to. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was great. I'm honored to be on the show. Always. Um, Thanks, everyone, for listening. To learn more about the food and drink discovery platform that is The Feed Feed, head to thefeedfeed.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Feed Feed, and we will see you next time. The Feed Feed is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.